Okay. This is, you're listening. If you're ever listening to this. This is WCAALP, Albany, New York. The Voice. I have a voice in Albany. Project of Grand Street Community Arts. So, this is the Three Left Show, also retitled What's Left in Albany, which is, has a double meaning. What is left to do in Albany? And what is left wing in Albany? What is left politics in Albany? So, uh, as uh, it has been a whole month since I broadcast, um, the reason is I've been doing a home improvement project, which basically I've been taking the long way around to finishing. And that means, you know, I want as much time as possible. Actually, no. The real reason is the heat wave that has occurred over the course of uh, most of July and uh, last week. And it's finally starting to break, uh, at least humidity-wise. Um, forecast is mid-80s, uh, highs of mid-80s, much more comfortable as far as I'm concerned. It was pretty it was pretty comfortable today. I know it's going to get nicer, better in my apartment. It was getting very near unbearable. I really didn't feel like going to the studio, especially since we've kind of uh, boarded up the windows. Like, not boarded up like it's abandoned, but, I mean, we have covered uh, the windows. It's So it's, you know, a bit more comfortable in here in wintertime, but that means we can't actually get an air conditioner or window fan in there. So it's also, I need one to make sure it was comfortable enough, but enough jibber-jabber. Let's just get right to the news that I want to cover, which, of course, is always ongoing. It's more like I'm covering things that happened in the past, but, are of course, ongoing issues. It's not like late-stage capitalism went anywhere, also known as the neoliberal era that has been in effect since the mid-1970s. I've come upon a better way of explaining it in general, simple definition, that neoliberalism is simply capitalism without a labor a labor opposition without any pushback from labor. Not just big labor or unionized, but just labor in general, working class people. There's never been enough opposition to what capitalists or capitalism as a system seeks to do. Commodify as much as possible, profit seek. These things, of course, occurred uh, before capitalism, so it's probably not right to define capitalism in those terms. This is one of the traps that are set, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's all profit-seeking capitalism. Well, no, it's more like you use money to make more money and reinvest it, which seems like, you know, a good thing to do. That's, that's what we want people to do. And that's been policy in Albany, uh, and it's how power works, which I will try to dive into, try to have a theory of power in Albany. Not there yet. I'm still just going to, for now, first phase one, just cover the general issues of you know, as a man about town, someone who generally understands things, has reading comprehension, and just reads the newspaper to you, um, the fair citizens of Albany, to to become out, to to get out of the the hole of being a denizen, you know, just doesn't know what's going on, because that's that's true disempowerment. So the first two stories have to do with affordable housing, quote unquote, affordable housing as a policy, as something to achieve. Um, let's start with what is called inclusionary zoning, Albany's inclusionary zoning policy. It's something that has been in effect for a few years, not like it's really noticeable. I'll explain why. But it went into effect or was put into law or the codes of Albany when the rezoning was accomplished and passed. 
And it was kind of the most contentious part of the rezoning. There are others, of course, from people who love parking, even in urban areas, the most parking possible. Or they don't want their neighborhood to be disrupted in any way, whether it's by having corner buildings that are taller than one story or whatever. Or projects that just, there'll be more traffic. There'll be more traffic, they say. Albany scrambles to replace affordable housing requirement. This is a story from late of last year when it was not quite budget season, but the budget has, had passed. But it had been discovered that the requirement to have affordable housing in how, uh, for-profit housing projects wasn't actually there in the law. Let's go into that. A bureaucratic error nearly led to the Common Council to approve a revised city zoning code that didn't have an affordable housing requirement for large residential projects. So the zoning code, you know, the zoning code was reformed. It was passed anew about five years ago or four, and four years ago. I forget if it was four or five, but otherwise it's like a cycle. And uh, it has in it stipulates that it needs to be, it gets reviewed and repassed about every political cycle, uh, which is new. Usually it doesn't. It didn't get, you know, reviewed and so on before. Now it actually, like laws, they should be sunset. You know, if, if people, if it isn't working, it should be able to be revised on a regular basis. And this is one of those times. But while it was being revised, maybe, what whoopsie-daisy, uh, affordable housing uh, requirement wasn't in there. Over the past six months, the planning department and the council's planning and econ development and land use committee, that really should be condensed name-wise, have worked on a number of changes to the city's zoning code, also known as the Unified Sustainable Development Ordinance, USDO. That's just the name of the law, the zoning law. I will also shorten it to zoning law. The council was set to vote on the changes at its meeting Monday night. This was early December 7th, um, or the week of December 7th. Part of the code requires any developer of a multifamily project, meaning apartments, with more than 50 units to set aside 5% of them as affordable housing. So let's do some quick math. I did it in my head already. Okay, so I'm not that smart. But it's basically two and a half units when it's 50 units. How do you, how do you, how does half a unit become affordable? Don't know. But you don't get more like three units until it's 60 units, I guess. And, and this is, okay, so in, in rereading this, I realize it's actually worse than I thought. It isn't 50%, you know, when there's multi-unit, when it's multiple units, but it actually has to be a minimum of 50 units before this 5% even kicks in. And you maybe also may think 5% seems very low. I mean, other cities like New York, maybe it's 15%, 20%. Well, that was the initial ask of housing advocates and folks like myself. I actually would think it needs to be way more, like half uh, would be extreme. Like that's where you start the negotiation. But no, 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 to, to be like, you know, pilf, pilfling. Um, no, we'll start at the 20 to 15% of most cities that have exclusionary, not, no, inclusionary zoning, it's called, where you require affordable units, meaning that it's under market rate, or rather it's defined as 80% of median income, that if you make that, you should be able to afford the unit. 
But no, then, then the mayor and her team said, like, no, no, no. We will not, you know, it's we need, we're competing with all those cities with 15%. So if we're going to get housing development of any kind, then we need to be lower than that 15%. We should require, and so it went from 10 to 5. So it's literally the lowest you can go to have a requirement. Oh, we have a requirement. It's just 5%. Pitiful. During the planning department's revisions, the affordable housing requirement was deleted. The deletion initially escaped the review of the department, common council members on the committee, and the county planning board, which I guess is also involved. The error was discovered late last week. When it was brought to the council members' attention, it led to suspicions the requirement was intentionally removed, and there was a scramble for a solution. Right. Councilman Alfredo Ballerin expressed his frustration to Zach Powell, a staffer with the planning department, after Powell explained what had happened. Quote, if what we're going to vote on doesn't have inclusionary housing, then we don't have inclusionary housing, he said during Monday's meeting. That this is missing really is shameful. It's really shameful when you look at all the work that's been done. Ballerain was not the only council member who expressed frustration and disappointment over the requirement not being in the revised zoning law. Several council members mused whether the omission had, may have been intentional, but Powell and other council members who worked on the revisions reiterated that it was just an oversight, meaning the members who are in the planning committee, people who are, you know, responsible also. So this would be on them if if something was taken out on purpose without telling the rest of the council. We all share responsibility for looking at it and know what it is we're voting on, says Councilwoman Judy Dorache. The omission also led to ambiguity about the and the incentive the city offers developers to build said affordable housing. Powell explained to the council members that the best course of action would be for planning director Brad Glass to issue an interpretation notifying developers that there was no omission in the city code and that from the planning department's perspective, there was still an affordable housing requirement in the city. That would buy the city time to make the necessary changes and go back through the approval process. Of course, why not just hold off for a week, rewrite it, and then pass it, you know, unless they already passed it? But a planning department interpretation won't be required. Councilwoman Kathy Fahey, chair of the council's planning committee, said on Tuesday the city was able to get a revised version that included the affordable housing requirement on the county planning board's December 16th agenda. Oh, okay. Right. That seems to be the general court. Why, why was there this rig around of, oh, well, we won't have it, but we'll tell uh, them that they, it's like, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Or they don't follow it. And, you know, when we say, yeah, but we had a note saying that we have it. And then we're like, oh, yeah, is that going to hold up in court? <laughs> Fahey emphasized that the affordable housing requirement wasn't intentionally left out. I don't find her totally trustworthy, but we'll take her word for it for now. It's just really unfortunate, she, uh, she said Tuesday. Affordable housing, that means a lot to the members. Meaning, does it not mean a lot to her? The new Common Council, which will take its seats at the beginning of this year, is expected to explore possibly expanding that requirement. That was one of the things some of them probably ran on, getting it up to maybe 15%, like what other cities have, um, which doesn't really overall solve the problem of housing affordability, requiring uh, you know the market rate projects that do occur, to 
when they're big enough, over 50 units? Come on. That's big. That's like half a block or a full block-sized apartment building. We don't really have a lot of those in Albany. I don't know if you can, can tell. Um, for example, new uh, market rate um, apartments that are be, being put in the old Fryhofer's uh, factory slash warehouse on Elk Street, where I live, uh, is 27 units. You know, a little le- more than half. And it's a fairly decent-sized building, and it's like four or five stories high. They're adding another story for townhouses. Okay, good. Good. Um, so the next is to deeper go deeper into the affordable housing development picture. From the Albany Business Review, basically I have three sources, Business Insider, Albany Business Review, and Times Union. Or local blogs, I mean blogs from activists. I don't have any of those today. It's not the type of stories I'm covering. So this one's called What It Took to Finance One Quote-Unquote Affordable Housing Development in Troy. Now, why is it usually called affordable, quote, you know, in quotes? Well, maybe the rent is slightly less than market rate, but not by that much. If you're still paycheck to paycheck, you're still going to have trouble. Uh, two, um, the cost isn't lower it's not a cheaper building than a market rate building or market rate apartment. If it's going to be, you know, affordable and cheaper, maybe it should be built for cheaper. Written by a Chelsea Diane. Two first names? Anyway. It took six years, $18 million, support from federal and state governments, and coordination among five funding sources and dozens of partners to build 51 affordable apartments in Troy's north-central neighborhood. Now, I really don't like, I've been reading this kind of paragraph all my life, and it just makes my head spin, especially when I start interacting with maybe some of the nonprofits, these partners that there's just so many partners involved with every kind of project you can think of. Community garden, uh, community project of some kind, lots of partners, lots of people that have to be involved. I mean, yeah, that's sort of like the chaos of democracy. It's messy. But when you're trying to keep things straight and there's and levels uh, of accountability and responsibility, it just adds so much complexity with each partner because they're all different legal entities. If there was under some other kind of structure where it's more federated or everyone is like the same piece in a larger, larger puzzle or a larger umbrella. But as it is now, we're all like separate entities trying to like partner together. But just it, to me, it's just really, really complex. And you have to keep track as an administrator, which then makes things even more bureaucratic. So. Quote, there's lots of developers who will go in and do a big investment in an old factory building, said Christine Nelson, CEO of the Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program. And I understand why more now than ever, because it is less expensive. You have a single set of neighbors. There are less grounds to break. I totally get that. But that's not what our neighbors wanted. The Hillside Views Neighborhood Rehab, I'm going to call it Rehab Project, but it's revitalization, I just... Don't like using that word. Uh, too long, too complicated. Just it's a rehab, rehabilitation. They, they use vitalize. You know, we want vital, vital. You know, vitalize was one of the first large-scale new development projects led by the Trip and Unity House. 
But breaking ground on the 51 apartments scattered across eight lots wasn't easy. It required getting tax credits, an equity partner, and a, that's someone who puts up the money, and a 13 million construction loan with NBT Bank and listening to neighbors' concerns. No, so it always comes last. The first tenants, well, the money comes first, right? The first tenants started moving in this year. They are bus drivers, preschool teachers, certified nursing assistants, and others who earn at or below 60% of the area median income. And yet these are essential people to our society, aren't they? Hmm. Or about 40 grand for one person, but you're not going to make more. Or the median income is 40 grand, by the way. So they make 60% of that or below. Rent costs 30% of the household's monthly income or about a grand a month for one person on a 40 grand salary. As housing becomes more expensive, projects like this are vital. Now, you know, it's another question. Why is it so expensive? Many answers to that question. Projects like this are vital in revitalizing neighborhoods. That's terrible writing, by the way. That's like, um, uh, hmm, what is that like saying? It's like saying I rushed quickly. I was quick, quickly. That's what that's like. And allowing more people to save so they can eventually buy their own homes, you know, because otherwise they're paycheck to paycheck. But the complexities of the project, you know, the cycle of poverty. Anyway, from working with neighbors to getting tax credits to lining up banking partners, it makes it incredibly complicated. Every time, quote, every time we do a project like this, we get to the finish line and we see how quickly this fills up. And then I hear after the fact, but we just need more units, said Alfred Testa, NBT's commercial executive for the Capital District. It's such a heavy lift, and it's so much time and so many resources to get these projects up and running. But our communities just need more housing like this because there's so many people who need it. Uh, TRIP, which is the Troy Rehab and Improvement Program, started in 1968 with the goal of building strong, balanced communities. So long ago, and yet so far to go. Almost seems like the wrong strategy from where I'm sitting. Today, Nielsen said that involves taking with commu- talking with community members and working together to identify the assets in the community that need greater investment. This is where my radical politics comes in. Not comes in, but I mean it comes to mind that, you know, it's, they've been at this for, let's see, 30, 50 years. And yes, you can always say that without their program, it would be worse. But the problem persists. And if you're not working at solving the big problem of why there isn't any, like, why is it always like there's never enough affordable housing? So we have to get to the whole what is property question and why is it private? Why isn't this all community owned? Why is the banking so restrictive and like, you know, it's project by project? Like, why isn't there a billion dollars? You know, why is it just a trickle of support? And why is it, okay, but this is, this, this is why I'm reading this. It's getting into how each project, each 50 units of housing is just so goddamn complicated. It takes five years. And by the time you get it built, you need a hundred more units. Conversations around the Hillside Views project started in 2016 when Nielsen left Unity House to become the director of TRIP. The three steps were looking at properties that were already in our portfolio. 
whether they were vacant, abandoned, or empty lots, or things that we could put together. So they saw eight different lots scattered around the neighborhood, including 538 8th Street, 313 9th Street, among others. So this is called, when you when you take a vacant lot and you put housing on it, it's called, uh, especially an urban grid like Troy, it's called infill housing. And separately, when you do it at a bunch of places at once, you can call it scattershot. Scattershot infill housing. Some jargon for you. Um, but it makes things simpler to explain. The next step was navigating the red tape of getting low-income housing tax credits, because it can't just be money, it has to be a tax credit, needed to make projects that offer housing below what is considered market rate feasibly, financially feasible. Nelson, uh, Nielsen worked with Monica McCullen, a development consultant out of Rochester. Why isn't there one in Troy? Surely there must be one in Troy. To be able to do something at this scale and successfully get that 9% tax credit needed for the project to work. Why do we need to have, you know, 9% off to work? Once the project was approved for its tax credit, Nielsen said they had to campaign for an equity partner to find a construction loan lender. That itself is its own project. You have to do like a political campaign just to find someone to put, put up the equity. The equity partnership is something that you basically go out and shop yourself. So it's like you're pitching, you're making a campaign for someone to pick you up. And because it was a scattered site with eight different parcels, it was seen as a risk in a neighborhood that has old infrastructure and lots of neighbors and lots of potential risks. It's an interesting. Now, when you have a dense neighborhood, you have a lot of neighbors, a lot of different people. That means and each person is a different thing that could go wrong because people are just terrible, violent. Uh, never mind whatever racism is lurking under the surface of it being a urban neighborhood. Black neighborhood. Whatever. They bought on Redstone Equity Partners to essentially buy the tax credits. Because it's not like they could, right? You have to be a business to get tax break. You have to spend money to get a tax break. You can't just get grants. Although sometimes you do. But this for this project, it was about $9 million. Um, in turn, Redstone gets about a 1% equity interest. Nelson then connected with NBT Bank and Testa, by then, it was early in the pandemic, and most of the communication was over phone and Zoom. Quote, we have a deep history in doing affordable housing projects across upstate New York, and a very thorough understanding of what these need to look like and make sure there's an there's the appropriate partners in this project. Don't like how that was structured, but whatever, it's someone talking. The big thing for us is who is leading the project and do what we, that we know them and are comfortable with them. We know who's doing the work in the community day in and day out, so once we realized that these two organizations were putting forth these critically important projects, we wanted to be a part of it. You know, because, you know, if you're new, what do you have to do to get a chance? Anyway, yes, uh, we fully recognize there's a risk associated with it, but after meeting with Christine and learning more, we knew we wanted to be there. I guess they made the right case. What's different, Tessa said? about these affordable housing projects compared to the traditional commercial projects is the number of players and the complexity involved. When we work with a traditional for-profit developer, it's the bank working with the developer and their in-house development team. When we're looking at a transaction like this, there's a number of stakeholders, obviously. There's TRIP, Unity House, but then Christine brought on a development consultant, and then you have a number of permanent funding sources. We're the construction lender and get them to the finish line. I mean, they already have the land at least, right? 
Oh, geez. And these units, they're not even two stories. One of them is, geez, not even, I don't even think they're using the land, like, effectively. Construction started last year on one four-story building with 28 apartments and seven townhouse-style buildings at scattered locations. The buildings were constructed in phases, with the smaller townhouse-style apartments going online first. I don't know why online being finished. Open house. Several of the apartments were set aside for people with disabilities. Okay. The project was recently able to get an 800,000 federal home loan banks grant to upgrade some of the finishes to last longer. Because otherwise, these things will fall apart in 30 years. We wanted to build communities that have homeowners that have rental opportunities across many socioeconomic realities. We want to ensure that there are stores and commercial spaces and parks and sidewalks and lights and parking spots. Parking spots? Why not bus access? Come on. What's with this old thinking? Parking. They need parking. Everyone has to be driving. Like they could afford cars and housing, right? But to eventually turn those tenants into homeowners. Let's see. Nielsen said the goal isn't just to build affordable apartments like this across neighborhoods, but to eventually turn those tenants into homeowners. Well, are they structured to do that? To have rent to own? I always appreciate when people elevate the more sophisticated way of thinking about affordability because I'm going to assume if it bridges the gap between people thinking, I'll always be a renter and I can save to own my own home. Nielsen said, if you're ensuring that you're only paying 30%, oh, okay, they're not referring to any rent to own or rent, like rent to own, like to actually like have the people living there eventually own the uh, units. No, they're just talking about people having a little bit of income to save so they can save up for that housing down payment. If you, Which to me is so liberal. So liberal, I guess. Um, but let's get around to what I think is better. First off, um, two stories that are right around the corner here in the South End, literally on the block. Uh, we're Grant, from Grand Street. African American Cultural Center, that is their actual name. I wish they had a kind of different, more concise name, but African American Cultural Center is what they are. They buy, they have, uh, this, this is the story also re- uh, recorded December 21st of last year. So again, I'm not going with the most recent news. Sorry. But here we are. But this has some details that I didn't know, so maybe you'd like to know. So they have bought a property for their South End grocery store. Purchase a former McDonald's building, land at Madison Avenue and South Pearl Street, is a major step in effort to build store for Albany neighborhood. Um, the two, a grocery for the South End moved much closer to opening with the announcement Tuesday that the African American Cultural Center purchased the old McDonald's property at the corner of Madison Avenue and South Pearl Street. Shaped sort of like a boat. The center purchased the property at 106 South Pearl from the land's owner, which was the Albany Housing Authority, the city, or at least a city department, with the hope of opening the store there early next year. Why didn't they just give it to them? Why did they have to buy it? It's a public department, but that's 
Uh, that's what I don't like about authorities is that they're as much they're, they're almost like a public private partnership. Like, you know, housing authority, parking authority, they they're in their own little worlds, almost separate from city policy or city governance. It really, yeah, it's and it it opens the door for corruption, which exists, or just autocratic behavior of directors that's like just let me do my job do your job not building enough new housing some of them aha has done more but again why not just give them the land anyway those behind the project said the store would bring fresh and healthy food to an area refer to well to an area that is a food desert we don't need euphemisms here or say an area referred to by others we're not going to call it a food desert because obviously no it's a food desert because of the lack of options to purchase groceries. The people of the South End, black and oppressed peoples, have reason for joy today. It is my honor to endow assets and control production in a sovereign means for these people. Although a grocery store isn't really production, means of distribution, definitely an essential part of life. African American Cultural Center Executive Director, as well as the Blue Light Development Group President. So he does. He has both hats. I look forward to our formal opening in spring. Now, this did not happen. So moved uh, a bit later. Uh, don't know what the exact uh, opening date or area is, but there's still, you know, uh, some delay has occurred. So anyway, the, uh, the building itself is about 3,000 square feet. Sits on about an acre and a half of land because it includes a parking lot, which they were using to pretty good effect during. Juneteenth. Earlier, earlier this year, the Cultural Center announced it was looking to open a full-service grocery store at the now-closed restaurant. You can call it that. An early plan intended to redevelop the space for El Pion Market, a convenience store that has already operated at 179 South Pearl as a limited-service grocery store for the last few years. So this was their first plan, I guess. If Blue Light Development and African American Cultural Center are unable to secure an appropriate operator... They have letters of interest from the Food Bank of Northeastern New York and Capital Roots to operate satellite locations on the site. Right. So, so they it's obvious they're not opening and starting like their own food co-op, which is kind of what I thought they were doing. But I guess it's an operation. So the early plan was to have the one of the bodegas across the street kind of run the market, upgrade. From bodega to grocery store. That's why I didn't like that sentence. It's like, okay, what happened to that plan? Did the plan fall through? But no, no, I guess that's their backup if they don't secure any inappropriate operator. Okay, fine. So that's their backup plan. God, that's why I don't like it. It's a, that should have been after, at the end of the sentence. I'd say, if they can't, like, here are the appropriate operators, and if they can't secure them, they have a backup, which is the bodega operator across the street. And like the affordable housing, there are many org- organizations and uh, partners involved in the purchase, probably even more. Grants and loans from Capcom, KeyBank, the Albany County Capital Resource Corp, Blue Light Development Group, which is, I guess, the um, what was created by the African American Cultural Center, and MVP Healthcare covered the 850000 purchase price and closing costs. County officials said. MVP said, and that's why I don't like this article should kind of 
tease out what the relationship between blue light and the AACC is. Is blue light like a subproject? Is um is Trayvon Jackson it says like he's he's the head of both organizations? Because some people are made the director or like the board chair of an org because they have like they already have an asset that that organization wants to use or wants you know gives them gives them a stake. Uh, so anyway, so the purchase price, which I swear should have just been a dollar, but it was eight hundred fifty thousand. Which seems like it's an acre and a half, true, and it is downtown. But holy, sh- holy moly, this is for like a public. I mean, but it's. I guess that's the point. It's not a public enterprise. It's not a community any enterprise. I'm confused. I don't like when articles. I mean, it's good to have more questions. I suppose it's good. And maybe there are new things. I was. I think I was just. Maybe there's more recent articles, but. Again, it's not like they're that long and they don't go in depth. But anyway, the last uh, bit of it is, you know, a quote from County Executive Dan McCoy about, you know, health equity and taking a village. <laughs> but this announcement is a great example of how the public and private sectors can come together to overcome big challenges. Because it's not like the private sector would just open a grocery store downtown. No, no. Can't do that got to be half public or at least have a public stakeholder or community stakeholder but if that's like this is how it's worked out and this is probably how it had to happen i don't like that because ideally i would like to see community actors but yeah actually yeah i don't have to explain i can tell you with the next story which is literally down the block about the coliseum this is how i'd like things to go um, and the fact that it's going this way is really encouraging um, to me and gives me hope that I can definitely move forward with my dream of a permanent real estate co-op, which does not exist anywhere in the East, East Coast. I don't even know if any exist outside of Oakland, which is where the one that currently exists has just started and is being tested out. But until the permanent real estate co-op gets its legs... And I can start getting some other like-minded people on board with starting one. Uh, we have this, which is practically just as good as far as my values go. And this is from also from Albany Business Review. Albany Building Deal opens doors for neighbors as investors. How you should actually build equity and fund projects. But in this case, it isn't building a new building or rehabbing or starting a new business. It's merely transitioning the ownership of a current, already operated enterprise that's for profit into something that is socialist. You know, is it still... I'm sure there will be many who would still like, oh, this is still capitalist. We're just changing the equity stakeholders from an LLC to a community org. And I'll be like, yeah, that's actually what socialism is. Ownership of land, buildings, means by communities, by workers, by the people who use it and live nearby. A a commercial real estate investment opportunity 
as that is how Albany Business Review will, will you know, frame things, is coming to Albany South End. Because, you know, none existed before, right? A low-income neighborhood where most residents rent apartments rather than own property in which they can build equity. You know, without land, demand is not free. This is called, is being called, or is called, a community investment trust. It will enable, enable people, you know, because when you're not in a co-op or mindset, because we don't have a good co-op law, and that's wink, wink, what we need, that's what I'm going to push for the rest of my life. If it kills me, we'll get a co-op law in Albany. But until then, we, we work through trusts to have, to, have, to have community ownership. Uh, this community investment trust, it will enable, enable people living in the neighborhood to make monthly payments uh, as low as 10 or up to 100 to own a share of a four-story commercial building at 153 South Pearl Street, also known as the Albany Coliseum. Owners will take an investment education class as well. You know, just um, primer, a orientation class, basically. They'll get a letter of credit guaranteeing their money and collect a minimum 2% annual dividend. And that's where it kind of, it's like, well, no, this is still capitalism. You get a dividend. Okay. And we'll have input on the small business they'd like to see lease space in the building, which is community governance, known as the Albany Coliseum. Uh, through a board, by the way. They do it through a trust board. Not direct democracy. Not yet. Let's see. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't a pie in the sky. Wouldn't it be great concept? Yes, because, you know, I'm, I'm way beyond thinking like, oh, wouldn't it be great? No, no. When I have a concept, I want to do it. I want to see it. I don't consider it pie in the sky or unlikely. A better world is possible. And that's why I'm a socialist. Rather, it's based on a model created by Mercy Corps Northwest in Portland, Oregon. There, a community investment trust bought and stabilized a one-story retail office building in 2014 that had previously faced foreclosure. So this also seems to be a new concept, something that has been developed in the last decade, similar to mine, but it's just simpatico. It's, things can develop at the same time with very similar ideas. The real estate co-op, I mean. David Kraft, formerly a staff attorney at the Community Economic Development Clinic at Albany Law, Albany Law School, of course, learned about the Community Investment Trust, also known as a CIT, SIT, and talked to some local nonprofits about it, including Community Loan Fund. Linda McFarlane, who was executive director there, was hooked. Definitely liked the concept. Definitely liked the idea. When he brought it to my attention, we were very excited about it. So... Pretty soon, not soon, someday. I don't know when, but my, I call it a dream, but it's basically a plan. It's also to take the permanent real estate cooperative idea to McFarland and say, like, can you fund this too? I'm sure she will say, of course. But first, I need ducks in a row. And I think some properties to donate to start with is kind of my uh, step one. You know, have some people who are ready to kind of put their properties in so that the real estate co-op starts with, 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 with some assets instead of zero. As I've read on this program in the past, I've covered the permanent real estate co-op, look back a few episodes. So that's because the Community Loan Fund for years has worked with startup businesses. If I have to explain, this is what they've done. Many of them run by women, people of color, helping with financing, training, affordable space, and other resources. 
They mostly fund small businesses, you know, one or two people operations. Half of them go bust or they don't last, unfortunately, but doesn't deter doing it. With a community investment trust, McFarland said the impact would extend beyond an individual entrepreneur to a broader community. Right. We have to go beyond hustle, culture, and why don't you just, hey, capitalism got you down, bosses, landlords, why not start a small business? Why not become a, a property investor yourself? Join the game. Play Monopoly. So going to the idea to execution has taken time, including pro bono legal work from Kraft that Kraft and other attorneys did setting it up. This is the kind of work that uh, friends of mine need to start their housing co-op. It's not a real estate co-op, but let's start with a housing co-op at least, because we haven't, we don't even, we haven't never had one in Albany. Got to start somewhere, right? So real estate broker Tracy Murgis and students at the Siena College AmeriCorps Vista program. We're also involved in the search and analysis of various properties. So they were looking for kind of a commercial property to, to start the trust or to, to transfer it. In the end, the Albany Coliseum stood out for various reasons. It's on the bus line, it's in the south end, and it already has commercial tenants. A key component is the gut story of the building, McFarlane said. How does the community feel about it? If there's something positive about it and the community wants to get behind it, it will be more successful. Right. So, definitely true. Uh, Coliseum's a great building. It has basically all black businesses in it. And I've actually rented from them. Not personally me, but Occupy Albany actually rented a space in the Albany Coliseum. Uh, it was half the cost of renting the former office that we were using on Madison Avenue adjacent to Washington Park, which was like about $800. And it was going up to nine, and we're obviously, we also running out of money. And so to make, uh, to stretch the amount of money we had, uh, let's say it was a few thousand dollars, uh, maybe three grand, I think, something like that. It's like, oh, what's well, a space in the Coliseum is only 400. So we, uh, stored and, and used that for meetings, because at that point we only needed a space to, that could hold 10 people. And that's, it held, you know, uh, six, eight people. And it was fine for our purpose. And I think we, we had our stuff there for a year and basically called it quits. And that was also when I was, it's not when I left, of course, or ended the project, but trying to keep Occupy Albany alive. It was all a mistake in the long run, but it was also just taking it one step at a time of, uh, attritioning down because we had a lot of stuff and it was like, okay, let's at least in stages with each move we make, we'll shed a lot of the stuff, find homes for things and resources that had been collected by Occupy. Anyway, so anyway, it's a popular building. It's very nice. It hasn't been decrepit, and it's, you know, good. So so, it, so basically, when you go to people like, hey, would you like to invest $10 a month, and you'd actually own a share of the Coliseum, a building you already go to, that's got to be really good. It's got to be a good sell. Um, by sell, I mean, they'll be buy-in. Buy-in, buy-in. Don't sell out, buy-in. The Albany Coliseum opened in 06. Really? That, that more, that recent? I guess I can believe that. It offered cheap rents, you know, $400, and small spaces to budding businesses. Inside, there are hardwood floors, pressed tin ceilings, that's a very old building, and a working piano player on the upper floor landing. I have used it. It is there. There's a piano. 
And by the way, it's um, it mentions corridors. It's not really corridor. Well, the the first floor has a corridor, I would call it. But the second floor mostly has like kind of a big open room with clustered uh, offices around it. So it's less of a co- corridor, but like a kind of a, an open space, uh, which we used for a meeting once uh, where we had more than 10 people. Each of the 15 businesses on the first and second floors have their own doors and walls with shared corridors. See, it's not a co-working space. They actually have their own room. They include a body sculpting studio, hair salon, barber, Chef C, who serves Southern-style food, though they're not usually there. My complaints aside, they do, they are there. And the owners are all women or men of color. A church called Open Ministries leases the third floor, and the fourth is occupied by Christopher Gallagher, president of, of the real estate firm Gallagher & Co., the longtime property owner. Gallagher liked the community investment trust concept and agreed to sell the building. Here's where it gets nice. And three adjacent surface lots. And this is his asking price, $850,000. So that's the same amount as the McDonald's building and the parking lot next to it. And the Coliseum is a four-story building. Like, how is it the same price? Now, in this case, maybe, like, this is making it a deal. You know, it's, it's a good deal, actually, compared to the one that Albany Housing Authority made. And again, this isn't to, I mean, it is a community endeavor, right? And, and he's a capital, you know, he's a, he's a business owner. It's got to be at a good value. It's got to be a good deal. So, yeah, he's not going to give it away. But, I mean, the Albany Housing Trust practically is public land. Anyway, I already did that rant. So, anyway, um, that was his asking price, and this was paid for in cash by the community loan fund because they actually do have they do have some spending money. Uh, the sale was closed June 3rd, month, last month. Sorry, this is much more recent. Uh, Gallagher will be moving out of the fourth floor by the end of September, and that floor will be converted into co-working offices, which I just lambasted, but whatever. Only people living with specific in within the specific zip codes will be eligible to purchase shares. Those zip codes that cover the South End, but they haven't been determined yet completely. Weird. So as neighborhood residents become investors, the loan fund will own less and less of the property. So as I was taking notes for this, I'm like, okay, how will this work? The loan fund owns it, and they'll manage it or something, and the investors. But it's like as they become more, uh, as they build more equity, as more people buy in, then they actually will not own it. They will transfer ownership over bit by bit to the trust that has been created, which will then be managed and represented by a board of directors as they take ownership. So they'll be the management, the landlords. Uh, But those landlords will be accountable to everyone who's bought in. And since it's a community effort with a lot of stakeholders, then, and then here's the tricky, well, here's the important part, that board needs to have a democratic process from which investors can take votes on things. And uh, working groups on bringing people in, which I assume they will have. So we'll turn it over to the SIT once it's operational, and we have a solid base of investors, McFarland said. About a dozen cities have done feasibility studies to set up such trusts, according to John Haynes, Executive Director of Community Investment Trust, Mercy Corp, Northwest. That's in Portland. Did it say Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon? Probably Maine. Some cities, such as Albany, are further along in the process as they have actually bought a building. 
The immediate tasks ahead of the South End include educating the neighborhood about the program, finalizing details for what will be upward of a million dollars in improvements, which includes installing an elevator. Yes, it doesn't have one. Bathrooms on the first floor. There are bathrooms on the second floor. You needed to, like, have a... It was like an old grade school thing where it's like there's a key to the bathroom and the whole floor is sharing it. Oh, no, no, no. no sorry. Everyone gets their own key, I guess. Only only the business owners had keys to the bathroom, basically. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so we were loaning. If someone needed the bathroom, it's like, oh, there's the key. Take the key. It's our, the room's key. But there's no bathrooms in the ground floor, so that would be nice. I don't know where they go, though. I guess you just remove or move one of the business businesses or such. Yeah. The first to commit is long time. Okay, sorry. But besides committing investors, you know, because $100 a pop isn't really enough to fund a million dollars. McFarland is also talking to prospective impact investors, people making an upfront investment to help finance the improvements, but who won't own shares of the SIT. But I guess I'll get some kind of return later on. The first to commit is a longtime businessman, Ed Sawyer. Sawyer whose extensive real estate portfolio includes office buildings and retail. Sire made a very generous, quote-unquote, investment, McFarland said, and is serving as an advisor because of his wealth of experience. So he gets some sec. The on-site operations manager at the building is Adrian Hill, who has lived in the region for about 30 years and remembers when the South End was a, quote, a hub of commercial business. There's even a block where it was the, practically the Jewish quarter. His smile and friendly demeanor will greet new and existing tenants such as Rashida Martin and Solange Castillo, owners of Culture Kingdom. That's culture of a K. The first time business owners open their small store April 8th, they sell imports from Ghana, which include soap, shea butter, candles, oils, tea, so on. Martin said her mother used to sell soap out of a car trunk and always wanted to open an actual store, but she died six years ago. One day I woke up and was like, let's make this dream come true. She was 41. She had never been to the Coliseum, but Castilio was familiar with it. They liked the affordable rent, which is 460, including utilities. Okay. Sorry, it was it was 42010. <laughs> $60, I guess, isn't too much of a markup. Martin quit her job as a cook. Castilio, who's 36, continues to work at Albany Med. It's been tough getting customers, they said, in part because the Coliseum doesn't look very inviting from the outside. There's a lack of awareness in the neighborhood despite handing out flyers. But they're optimistic about the changes ahead. I mean, it's practically a mini-mall. And there's 15 businesses in it. That's the same amount as a strip mall in a building that takes up, like, it's, it's like um, 40 feet wide, 60 feet long. And uh, I think we're going to get the exposure that we need. I feel like... We came in at the right time. Yes. And those improvements are definitely needed. Like um, the front has kind of two double doors and uh, and so on. But it could definitely be spiffier. And, and there definitely needs to be like a better way of like um, a big banner, not banner, but a sign with all the businesses on. Like so it actually looks like a mall uh, in a way. Or to have some kind of anchor store maybe. But. It's not fitted for that. It's a very old building with very small rooms. It's, the rooms themselves don't really there. There's no like store rooms. Like every like what's in the store is like whatever you got. You got stored in the room. But that's what keeps the rent under five hundred dollars, which is 
you know, hella cheap, but basically what it needs to be everywhere. So I'm coming upon the end of the hour. I just want to cover quickly. But um, it involves the Albany parking crater, which involves, um, it awaits another court decision. So the future of the dead zone in downtown Albany is on hold because of a more legal wrangling, which is going on for 20 years, basically. The owners of 11 parking lots totaling less than an acre near Greyhound Trailways bus station have asked the state's highest court to hear their appeal of a mid-level court ruling they lost early December. Attorneys for the parking lot owners contend that the Albany Industrial Development Agency didn't fulfill the requirements under the state uh, SEQA, that's Environmental Quality Review Act, when it condemned the land in January 2021 for a speculative redevelopment. Because basically, this is dead land, it's just parking lots that aren't just not doing anything. This is downtown Albany, and the public public entities want it redeveloped, and they're basically taking it over uh, on environmental grounds and also just to redevelop it, basically on behalf of capitalized Albany. The IDA wants to take the parking lots by eminent domain on behalf of capitalized Albany Corp. so the city can take the next steps of redeveloping the entire eight-acre site, which has languished for more than two decades, and there's no particular private developer who can take that on or wants to. The area bounded by Broadway, Hudson, Hamilton, and Green Streets includes parking lots and vacant buildings, including the Albany's oldest one, and, um, and would remain a part of any new development. City officials call the eight-acre site Liberty Park in reference to the small patch of grass amid the asphalt and pavement, which is, you know, called that. The parking lot owners face long odds in getting the Court of appeal, Appeals to hear their arguments. Last year, just 4% of the 801 requests that were received by the court, known as a motion to leave to appeal, were granted. The notion for leave in this case was submitted in January, followed by motions of opposition from attorneys representing Capitalize Albany and the Industrial Development Agency, which is also a arm of the city. It's basically it's like the, the actual thing that's part of the city and Capitalize Albany, which is the pseudo-government, the public-private partnership. Uh, or entity. The IDA has moved forward with surveying the lots as part of the condemning, but otherwise the proceedings regarding the valuation are on hold in the state Supreme Court. The IED appraisal determined the value of the lots to be $2.65 million. For years, it was expected it was a suspect, expected convention center built. But after the recession, um, it was scaled down and became the Albany Capital Center, which was built several blocks uphill, but also closer to Capital and probably a better site. Property owners are represented by William Kennedy, Brian Quinn, at Tabor, Ryan, and Kenny, LLP. Yeah, just list who the attorneys are. I guess it's a little, yeah, just in case you want to know. So that's the ongoing bit of that saga. I will always kind of check in on that. Um, why? Because I... Um, in my frustration with that, especially after the convention center stuff, I designed my own speculative um, designs for that land. Email me if you want a copy of the PDF. It's a number of drawings, pretty good, and sketches. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up the show now. Thank you for listening. You uh, call sign, this is WCAALP, 107.3 FM. I have a voice in Albany. Okay.
So with that, uh, I will end the show. Uh, thank you very much for listening. No music, no sign off. I'm signing off now. But otherwise, uh, this has been What's Left in Albany for what was or is the Three Left Show. And I am Dan Platt, prospective future council person slash mayor. But who knows? We will see in a cycle's time. But until then, I will be endeavoring to bring you, the people of Albany, the news you can use, the news that makes you educated and dangerous to the status quo. See you till next time, which will hopefully be next week. And in the short-term future, I will actually have my first interview with local organizer. So, And from there, I will move on to interviewing other people that are... I think I'll start this year with housing. It's the housing saga. And every when I interview and every story I cover will have to do with housing, planning, and city stuff. I'll, and then maybe I'll go year by year. So that by like if you listen to my show, you'll be a complete expert in everything in the city um, instead of trying to cover everything all at once. Um, and maybe I will train and try to get others to cover other sides of the the city. But otherwise, that's what I'm into right now. And one hour out of time one hour at a time, we will all know better and know more. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.